0: The Associated Press says pro football Hall of Famer Jim Brown has died. A spokesperson says Brown died at his home in Los Angeles with his wife by his side. He was 87. The three-time MVP running back led the Cleveland Browns to their last NFL title in 1964. Only... One of the more rewarding and humbling things about hosting a podcast dedicated to the intersection between sports and social justice is that I'm constantly learning just how much I don't know. And that was exactly what I was reminded of with the passing last month of Hall of Fame running back Jim Brown. In addition to being one of the best to ever play the game of football, Brown was also a civil rights icon, and so it seemed only natural that sometimes it rained should pay tribute to the passing of a legend who quite literally lived at that intersection. After listening to and reading dozens of interviews, along with the countless news stories, commentaries, and even a few documentaries, It became clear that I didn't know much of Jim Brown's life beyond the broadest brushstrokes. And what I quickly learned is that figuring out how to properly eulogize the man was as complicated as the man himself. But we're going to give it a shot. Welcome to this special episode of Sometimes It Rains. James Nathaniel Brown was born February 17, 1936, on St. Simons Island in Georgia. Born into poverty in a deeply segregated South, Brown's early life wasn't easy. His father left when he was a few weeks old. Not long after that, Jim's mother took a job up north as a maid in Manhasset, New York, leaving Brown to be cared for by his great-grandmother. Seven years later, his mother came back for him and moved him up to Long Island. He matured very quickly and it became clear by the age of 12 that he was born to be an athlete. He excelled at five sports in high school, football, baseball, basketball, track, and perhaps the sport he was best at, lacrosse. There were a number of scholarships available to Brown, but his mentor, Kenny Malloy, convinced him to enroll at Syracuse. Syracuse wasn't offering a scholarship, though, so Malloy, remarkably, convinced the people of Manhasset to pay for Brown's first year, assured that the university would take care of him once they saw his athletic prowess. What Brown quickly discovered, however, was that the racism he'd escaped in the South was just as prevalent up North. The football team refused to play him. He was segregated from the other players. He spent most of his short-lived basketball career on the bench due to an absurd rule Syracuse had that three black players couldn't start for the team at the same time. But even the deep-seated racism of the time couldn't squash Brown's unparalleled excellence in lacrosse. In interviews I found, more than once, opponents and teammates alike referred to him as likely the greatest lacrosse player of all time. As great as he was, however, Brown knew there was little chance he was going to make a living playing lacrosse, and he finally found an opening on the football team. With multiple injuries to the other running backs during his sophomore season, Brown found himself with playing time, and that was all he needed. By his senior year in 1956, He was averaging 100 yards per game, and in one of that season's highlights, or any other season for that matter, Brown, playing for the last time at Archbold Stadium, set an NCAA record when Syracuse beat Colgate 61-7. Jim Brown himself scored 43 of those 61 points off of six rushing touchdowns and seven kicked extra points. Because, of course, Jim Brown was also the team's kicker. Though that record would fall in 1990, his numbers at Syracuse in 1956 were staggering for any era. He averaged 123 yards per game and 6.24 yards per carry. He finished fifth in Heisman voting. Many believe he was undoubtedly the most deserving, but that there was no way the majority of voters were going to give a black man the Heisman. Interestingly enough, that honor would be bestowed on another Syracuse running back, Ernie Davis, five years later in 1961. It's a squeaker at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. Big star for Syracuse is All-American Jim Brown, scoring three touchdowns in a terrific one-man show. Recent history hasn't been terribly kind to the Cleveland Browns. That's owed mostly to the fact that they're one of only four teams to have never made a Super Bowl, and they've only made the playoffs three times in the last 30 years. But if you go back a little further, you'll find a football team with a championship pedigree. The Cleveland Browns, in fact, have historically been one of the most successful clubs in professional football history. From 1946 to 1989, they won 12 divisional titles, captured eight league championships, four in the AAFC and another four in the NFL, and made the playoffs in 26 seasons. The team's namesake was chosen by fans to honor their original and beloved head coach Paul Brown. And with the sixth pick in the 1957 draft, Paul Brown chose Jim Brown to be the future of the Cleveland Browns. It was a match made in heaven. Which is not to say Brown and Brown didn't butt heads from time to time. Jim Brown was like nothing the NFL had ever seen. Conventional thought was that nobody that big should be able to run that fast, but Brown could. But the other things that were typical for a fullback, namely blocking, were of little interest to Brown, so he didn't that ticked the coach off. But Brown wanted to do one thing and one thing only, run. He didn't really care for running out of bounds either. He'd run straight at the tackle. His philosophy was "quote, make sure when anyone tackles you, he remembers how much it hurts. Though Brown exploded onto the scene from the start, it was week nine of his rookie season when his ability was put on full display. Against the Los Angeles Rams, he carried the ball 31 times for 237 yards and four touchdowns, at the time an NFL record. He easily won Rookie of the Year. In 1958, Brown broke the single-season rushing record en route to being named MVP of the league. He scored twice as many touchdowns as the next best running back, and his production outpaced the rest of the entire league he was quite simply playing on a different level. A minor mix-up on the handoff, but Mitchell flips back to Jimmy Brown, and the Browns' massive Mr. Brown batters through the cards, 41 yards to touchdown territory. Jimmy Brown again, all 228 pounds, bowling through the middle and thundering 68 yards for the fourth score, as the Browns deal the cards in 38 to 24 defeat. From 1959 to 1961, Brown averaged 100 yards per game and never had a season with less than eight touchdowns. Keep in mind, these were 12-game seasons back then versus the current 17-game schedule. 1962 was the only season in his career that he didn't win the rushing title. He finished fourth with a still astounding 962 yards, and he still scored 18 touchdowns. By 1963, despite all of their accomplishments together, the one thing missing from both Paul Brown and Jim Brown's resumes was a championship. Owner Art Modell decided it was time for a change. Paul Brown was replaced by assistant coach Blanton Collier before the start of the 1963 season, and Blanton quickly adopted a philosophy of let Jimmy do what he wants to do. Here's teammate Paul Warfield speaking to ESPN for their award winning series, Sports Century. Blanton would put our ready list of plays on the blackboard during our first meeting and there would be a series of about 25 running plays there. And then he would say, Jim, what do you want to run? (laughs) The results were staggering. In 1963, Brown rushed for 1,863 yards, his career best and still a franchise record to this day. He averaged 133 yards per game. For context, in a full NFL season today, that would amount to nearly 2,300 yards. The all-time record held by Eric Dickerson is 2,105. In 1964, Brown had another stellar season, scored the 100th touchdown of his career, but more importantly, the Cleveland Browns won the 1964 NFL championship, beating the Baltimore Colts 27 to zero. Happiness is a team called the Cleveland Browns. Owner Art Modell talks quietly to Jim Brown, then hugs him gratefully. This is the overjoyed Brown's first championship. In 1965, Brown won the MVP again, rushed for 1,544 yards, scored 21 touchdowns, and made it to the title game again, this time losing to the Green Bay Packers. After nine seasons, Jim Brown had become the first player to ever break 10,000 rushing yards in a career, and had set multiple franchise and NFL records, some that would stand for 40 years or more. But perhaps the most astonishing statistic of all? In nine years of hitting as hard as he could and being hit as hard as they could, Jim Brown never missed a single game. And then, in 1966, at age 30, while still at the peak of his physical ability, Brown did something even more astonishing than his statistics. He retired. A few years earlier, Brown had discovered an interest in acting after appearing in the Hollywood western Rio Conchos. In 1966, he was working on the World War II action film The Dirty Dozen, and bad weather had delayed filming. When Modell learned that Brown would be reporting late for camp in order to finish the film, he was furious and threatened to fine Brown for every week he missed camp. Since Brown had already said 66 would be his last season, he instead announced his retirement right then and there. Over the years, Brown would appear in more than 30 films, an impressive feat, no doubt. But his other reason for retiring is, to me, even more impressive. In this modern-day sports environment, we're certainly no strangers to the challenges faced by athletes who choose to speak out on issues of racial inequality. Most choose to avoid it, lest they be told to shut up and dribble. So you can imagine what it meant for a black athlete in the 1960s to speak out on issues of race, war, etc., Hardly anyone could bring Muhammad Ali down, but his protest of the Vietnam War nearly did. So you could hardly blame a black athlete in the 50s and 60s for choosing to just play sports. But that was never Jim Brown. Brown's status as a civil rights icon seems to have come from a place deep inside of him. Perhaps most remarkable given the time period was the way in which Brown said exactly what he thought to anyone at any time. You know, I don't want to have an image. That's somebody's perception of me. I am who I am, and if you don't take the time to learn about that, then your perception is going to be your problem." Brown never seemed terribly interested in making friends or playing nice. There was a machismo, an alpha male quality he carried with him at all times. Those are also qualities that would become a huge problem for him in other aspects of his life, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But for this specific part of his life, that machismo created, at a time when America desperately needed to see it, an unapologetically and outspoken black man who wasn't taking shit from anyone and who also just happened to be the best football player the game had ever seen. On February 25th, 1964, Brown was in Miami Beach to watch a young Cassius Clay capture the heavyweight boxing title after his upset over Sonny Liston. Brown was expecting there to be a huge party. Instead, he found himself at the Hampton House Hotel, an unassuming segregated hotel in nearby Brownsville with only three other men, Clay, legendary musician Sam Cooke, and the Nation of Islam leader Malcolm X. The men had met to chart a course for the future of the fight against racial injustice. Nobody knows exactly what was discussed that night, though an imagined idea of the conversation became a 2013 play by Kemp Powers and then a 2020 film directed by Regina King called One Night in Miami. What we do know is that the very next morning, Cassius Clay announced he was converting to the Nation of Islam. Not long after that, he would permanently adopt his new name, Muhammad Ali. A few years later, at the height of his boxing career, Ali was notified that his draft status made him eligible to be drafted to fight in the Vietnam War. He declared he would refuse to serve on grounds of being a conscientious objector, citing his religious beliefs. He later went further in his opposition, stating, quote, Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? End quote. In April 1967, Ali refused to be inducted and was subsequently arrested. He was stripped of his boxing license and the World Boxing Association stripped him of his title. In response to all of this, Jim Brown did a pretty remarkable thing. In June of 1967, he organized what would become known as the Cleveland Summit. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. They include Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and former pro footballer Jimmy Brown. Says Brown after the meeting, the champ is sincere in his religious beliefs. Brown gathered a handful of the most prominent black athletes in the country in what initially was described as an effort to convince Ali to change his stance and agree to serve his country. In addition to Brown and Ali, at this meeting were Boston Celtics superstar Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, though he was still Lou Alcindor at this point, And several of NFL's most prominent players, including Curtis McClinton, Bobby Mitchell, and Willie Davis. Also present was Carl Stokes, who would soon be elected mayor of Cleveland, making him the first black mayor of a major American city. Over time, apparently the truth behind the meeting is proven to be less idealistic than the original mythology. There were a number of motives behind the meeting, some economic. There was said to be a deal on the table that the government might drop the charges against Ali if he agreed to participate in boxing matches overseas for US troops. A company called Main Bout was set up and would run the operation, and several of the men in the room were partners in the company and stood to gain money if they could convince Ali to change his stance, including Jim Brown. As the meeting ended, they held a press conference huddled around Ali as he announced that nothing had changed and his stance was the same as it always was. However, while Ali didn't change his mind, many of the men in the room changed theirs and gained even greater respect for Ali. As Bill Russell told Sports Illustrated, quote, He has something I have never been able to attain and something very few people I know possess. He has an absolute and sincere faith. I'm not worried about Muhammad Ali. He is better equipped than anyone I know to withstand the trials in store for him. What I'm worried about is the rest of us. End quote. While they may not have intended to, the lasting image of that summit is of a collection of very prominent black athletes standing in solidarity with a fellow black athlete who was standing up for something he deeply believed in. It's become a defining image in the fight for civil rights in the 1960s. Brown's civil rights accomplishments continued, from debating segregationist Georgia Governor Lester Maddox on The Dick Cavett Show. I feel that the way to bring about equality of black people in this system is to... What about economic- equality of white people? Now i won't interrupt you every time you keep calling black people. Well, what if you about you, equality if you, of all people? If you interrupt me, Governor, I can't talk to you. Well, I'm gonna, uh, you're just going to talk hmm. about To helping people. negotiate a highly successful gang truce in Los Angeles, which helped reduce violence in 1992. Yet perhaps the most lasting monument was his work with African American economic development. Inspired by the Black Freedom Movement's emphasis on self-reliance, Brown helped found the Black Economic Union, which pursued a capitalist economic approach to racial equality. Brown maintained that this group helped support 400 African-American businesses during its most active period, 1967 to 1974. At the height of mass incarceration in African-American communities, he launched the AmeriCAN Foundation, which helps formerly incarcerated youth develop job skills and improve the quality of their lives by equipping them with the necessary tools for self-improvement. Both organizations exist to this day. Jim Brown has undeniably made a lasting impact as an athlete, as an actor, and as a civil rights leader. But there's another part of his legacy, a darkness, an anger. He often came off as cranky in interviews, criticizing everyone from Michael Jordan to Tiger Woods, and saying that today's athletes are too soft. But Brown's actions didn't stop with abrasive interviews. Rather, he has a long history of physical abuse allegations. The first accusation came in 1965. An 18-year-old woman testified that he assaulted her in a Cleveland motel. The verdict was not guilty. She later filed a paternity suit, though the jury found in Brown's favor. In 1968, police found Brown's then-girlfriend, model Ava Marie Bon Chin, half-conscious on a concrete patio beneath Brown's second-floor balcony. It was believed Brown threw her from the balcony during a fight. Brown was charged with assault with intent to commit murder. He insisted she had fallen, and when Miss Bon Chin refused to testify... The case was dropped. Brown did pay a $300 fine for an altercation with a police officer during the investigation. In 1969, Brown was accused of assault and battery stemming from a traffic accident. Not guilty. In 1978, he served one day in prison for beating and choking his golfing partner. 1985, charged with raping and assaulting a 33-year-old woman in his home. Charges were dismissed based on inconsistent testimony. And in June 1999... Brown was arrested and charged with making terrorist threats towards his wife and threatening to kill her. Police arrested the 63-year-old legendary Cleveland Brown star at his Hollywood home for allegedly threatening to kill Monique and smashing her car windows with a shovel. Monique says she was emotional and overreacted. He was later found guilty of smashing her car with a shovel. He was sentenced to three years probation and domestic violence counseling as well as community service. When he refused these terms, he was sentenced to six months in jail. Spike Lee, in interviews for his documentary about Jim Brown, has said the reason for Brown's refusal was based on principle. The judge felt that the best way to utilize Jim Brown's resources is to pick up garbage on the highway. And Jim is a very proud person, and he felt it would be de- de- dehumanizing to do that. So he said, I'm not doing that, and I'd rather take the time. Take, so he's taken six months. That doesn't surprise you at all, though? It does not. It's consistent with his character. On many occasions, Brown asserted that he was a constant target because of his race and celebrity status. According to the New York Times in April 1969, in which he spoke about the balcony incident, he said, quote, The cops were after me because I'm free and black and I'm supposed to be arrogant and supposed to be militant, and I swing free and loose and have been outspoken on racial matters, and I don't preach against black militant groups and I'm not humble. End quote. Some have questioned whether this violence is related to CTE and the impact concussions have had on so many former football players like Brown. Larry King asked him directly if he thought maybe he had suffered concussions. Do you ever get a concussion? Uh, I didn't call it that. But I'm sure I had one against New York, Your guys. Uh, Sam Huff hit me behind the head and uh, I couldn't remember plays. So I guess <laughs> that would be considered. Which is exactly the response we've learned to expect from Jim Brown. The history of violence and rage has followed Brown for decades. He adamantly claims most of the allegations were false, though he did admit to a handful of them, and he acknowledged he had anger issues and even expressed some remorse for his actions. Some. A lot has to do with things I've done, a lot has to do with things I've been accused of, but most of it has to do of the reporting of those things. For example, they said I threw a, a female off of a balcony, which was totally untrue. Two people, the only two people in the room were Jim Brown and even Bon Chen. Her version of what happened and his version. And what What do you think happened? It looks bad. She says he came towards her, the next thing she knew she was in the hospital. In the end, I know there are those who say you have to look past the violence and appreciate the remarkable contributions he made on the field and the very important work he did within the civil rights movement. Others will say all of that is overshadowed by the domestic abuse allegations and that we shouldn't be celebrating this man under any circumstances. I have a problem with him being celebrated uh, to the extent that he's celebrated. A charge is what? It's a charge, right? What have I been convicted of? Like so many others in American history, this complicated story of Jim Brown has left many unsure how to treat the legacy of the football phenom. Reporter Jerry Eisenberg, speaking on Sports Century, had his own take on Brown's place in history. Look, he was a great football player. His heart was in the right place about wanting to see America get better. But that's where it stops. The advent of social media and a 24-hour news cycle means we learn more about the personal lives of those we put on a pedestal than we ever did before. Not just our sports heroes, but actors, musicians, political leaders, etc. Each of us has been put in the position of determining how we grapple with that information. Does the good someone did outweigh the bad? Or is it the other way around? We'll have to determine that for ourselves. Perhaps the answer lies in simply making sure when we tell his story, we tell his whole story, the good and the bad, which I hope is what we've done here today. Thanks for listening. Sometimes It Rains is presented by Ad Astor Productions and is produced by Nick Schmitz and me, Matt Hostetler. Our original music is by the incomparable Gary Grundy. You can find more of his music at www.garygrundy.com. Our executive producers are Bruce Jaffe and Mike Lucero.